0: Hello and welcome to Runway Girl Network In Conversation, a deep dive into aviation and the passenger experience. I'm RGN Deputy Editor John Walton, and today I'm in conversation with CNN Aviation Editor John Ostrauer. John, welcome to In Conversation. Thanks for having me. So, how did you first get involved in aviation? How did you get the bug?
1: I was I think I was born actually uh it sort of was always with me. Um I've always loved anything that flew since my earliest days and uh through uh a bunch of crazy twists and turns ended up uh writing a blog called Flight Blogger uh I joined Flight Global back in uh 2007 uh spent 4 years uh with flight International and uh moved from there to the Wall Street Journal covering Boeing and aircraft development and chronicling the saga of the 787 development all the way through and uh, joined CNN uh, at the end of 2016. So it's, it's been sort of a, uh, a lifelong path for me through, uh, through aviation, but really the last 10 have been spent uh, professionally and it's, it, uh, it's more fun than I ever could possibly imagine.
0: I couldn't agree more. Um, And indeed, we have you on to talk about aircraft today, and airframers in particular, um, especially the fast developing relationship between Airbus and Bombardier and Boeing and Embraer. But first, thanks to our sponsor. In Conversation is brought to you by Bolteron, a Simona company, purveyor of high-performance thermoplastics for tomorrow's aircraft interiors. Specialising in an extensive range of film and sheet products tailored to the requirements of the aerospace industry, Ultron is dedicated to providing consistent, high-quality materials, advanced performance solutions, and meeting evolving trends in aircraft interior design. Learn more at B-O-L-T-A-R-O-N dot com. John, first let's talk definitions. What exactly are the C-Series and the Embraer E-Jet? Are they small airliners? Are they big regional jets? Are they their own category? What are we calling them these days?
1: Well, it really depends where you live. Uh, In the United States... uh, they are small airliners. In Europe, they could be considered big regional jets. Uh, and certainly at various corners of, of the performance envelope, uh, they're in a category of their own. Uh, and that presents a lot of interesting uh, challenges uh, for the competition and also trying to define them because there are also legal ramifications uh, with that as it relates to the ITC, which I'm sure we'll get into later on in the, in the conversation. So... On the small end, the E-175E2 the e is a step up from where uh, Embraer has been on 76-seat regional jets uh, with the U.S. major airlines. Um, it is a heavier aircraft. It's a bigger aircraft with more seats. But it really holds in that sort of 80-plus um, uh, seat range all the way to 144-ish uh, on the E-195E2. Uh and so you've got this this really kind of substantial range but notably it stops right short of where Boeing is uh on the what was once the 737 700 and now the 737 uh, Max 7. Um Bombardier on the other hand goes from about 100 all the way to 160 depending on the density of of the airplane. Um you know you've got uh, essentially the ability to do you know, high frequency, high density, low cost, or on the bottom end, uh, you've got the ability to, f- to fly theoretically nonstop, uh, with, you know, just around 40 seats, 40 business class seats all the way from London city to New York. So you've got airplanes that really kind of touch all these different, uh, you know, product niches. And, but the bottom line is no one's really sure how big the market is for airplanes this size. It's really been an open question thus far.
0: Yeah, exactly. And of course, that market is slightly distorted in the United States with the scope clause. Can you give our listeners who might not be familiar with that uh, just a little potted guide to what that is?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So scope clause is, is, a, is an arrangement between uh, the regional airlines and the mainline carriers restricting the size of the airplane that uh, regional carriers can fly at a given presumably lower cost structure. Uh, than the uh, mainline airline. So in the U.S., that's capped off at a, a given uh, weight target, but it's also, um, held off at 76 seats. So what you actually get with a 76 seat, uh, regional jet is a considerable amount of comfort, uh, in a package that's actually made for a much larger, uh, capacity. So in, in Europe and other places, you see eight, you know, over 80 plus seats. On E one seventy five E two, but in the U S. you actually have a, a much more comfortable arrangement. So, you know, scope clause may be a uh, frustration for various parts of the of the business, but from a passenger perspective, it has actually been a, a, a pretty a pretty good development for uh, for our needs.
0: Well, exactly. I mean, I I think that one of the best ways you can fly around the U S., particularly in the economy, is down the back of uh, an E jet one these days, right? Um, but so, what is it that prevents this scope clause being renegotiated? Why can't airlines just go to their pilots and say, "Look, planes are getting bigger. We want to fly more of these larger regional jets, small airliners, using our um, contract and subsidiary carriers."
1: Well, you know, it, it like anything, it's la- it's a lot of labor politics, um, and uh, what, what's what's happening here is it, is. Uh, there is a shortage of pilots on top of this, so that's making things considerably harder. the the the, the natural desire is to start using bigger, bigger, and bigger airplanes to to um, to fly a larger number of people with the same number of pilots on smaller, less frequent routes. So, um, as pilots are in short supply, uh, airlines certainly want to be, um, you know, giving the regionals either greater options in terms of what they can fly um, because frankly when you when you notch up to uh, this sort of hundred seat market, what we've seen is that there's been a challenge for airplane makers um, and airlines to effectively um, take advantage of the economics of an airplane that size. because again, you from a. US perspective you're pulling down more expensive pilots into flying a smaller airplane. So you've got less ability to spread, spread those costs. Um, and the reverse uh, of this is that what we've seen is that the, the successful hundred seaters, uh, hundred, hundred, twenty seaters, are all derivatives. And you look at a 717, for example, which is which was not successful on its first go around, uh, fresh from the factory. It is a fundamentally derivative aircraft, but really didn't get to a price point that any airline could make it work until it became a secondhand airplane. And we see that with with Delta all over all over the U.S. right now. Um, certainly, uh, every hundred seat successful hundred seater before that has been um, either a, sh- a shrink or a stretch. Of a pre-existing airplane. And so in pursuit of that market, uh, one of the big selling points that Bombardier has talked about is that, well, we finally have a point-designed airplane that can operate in the 100 to 125, 30-seat range uh, that that uh, is tailor-made for that category. But again, the problem for Bombardier is that new airplanes are really expensive. And uh, finding a cost structure that matches with that uh, is really challenging uh, for a lot of the airlines, and and especially when you know we we see more used airplanes coming on on the market. You know whether you know certainly that category is shrinking because those airplanes are just getting older, but there's also the the push and pull tension of being able to get your investment back on an all new aircraft program and whether or not they can charge a price that matches with the cost to build the airplane which leads us to probably the how we got into the ITC in the first place and the price delta paid
0: yes exactly um because we're recording this uh the day before the uh US ITC is due to make its uh, final ruling we believe um given that we're not entirely sure what the appeals process is if it doesn't go Bombardier's way um so you know we we we're, we're, we're I, I think most of us are probably bracing. Oh, well, don't let me put words in your mouth. What, what do you think is likely to happen?
1: Well, there was a report uh, this morning from Reuters saying that the, that the Canadian government is expecting to lose. Um, it's worth noting uh, that a tie uh, on the commission of four uh, actually goes to Boeing, uh, the petitioner, by by virtue of uh, past precedent and how the, the, the commission operates. Um, but where we go from here is going to is a, is still a gigantic open question uh, what needs to be settled and whether or not the ITC will clarify this uh, once it finally releases their explanation for why it voted the way it did is whether or not airplanes uh, assembled in mobile would still be subject to that tariff Boeing vociferously and enthusiastically believes that no an airplane built in mobile is still a uh, an airplane that has uh, unfairly benefited from countervailing duties, um, and, uh, and, and price dumping and subsidies. Therefore, it should still apply. Boeing's position on this is not necessarily the final, the final decision on it, though. Um, that's going to be a, a huge question. And ultimately, what then becomes of, this kind of outstanding relationship between Boeing and Embraer that's that's been forged, and obviously what has already been announced in terms of the the fifty point zero one uh, percent uh, plan later this year to tie up uh, the C series program and Airbus. So you know we are in a, a period of monumental changes in terms of the landscape for for commercial airplanes, and it's a it's a very exciting, very consequential time.
0: I couldn't agree more. Um, now, we, let's take a quick step back. You mentioned the 717, which is, of course, an eventual derivative of the Douglas DC-9 from the 60s, um, much as the 737 is, a, the, in some ways, the same aircraft from the 1960s as well. Um, how do Boeing and Airbus compete in this segment? What are their their offers for this sort of 100-150-seater market?
1: Well, I think if, if you ask Tom Enders, um, he would say they have no interest in that market. And... He was asked point blank when they announced the uh, arrangement between Airbus and Bombardier about what's the effect on the A319neo. Uh, obviously, a, an airplane that is still very much in in development, um, but has a very tiny pool of orders. He said, well, we haven't really sold one since 2012. That should tell you everything you need to know. Um, and I think like any like any airplane maker, like any smart airplane maker, you want to sell the bigger airplane. And in Airbus's case, you want to set, be selling a 321 Neos, uh, not a 319 Neos, because the, the marginal cost to build a 320 versus a 321 is effectively negligible when you can charge a higher price for a 321. And by the way, the same is true for, for, um, for every aircraft maker. Um, certainly Boeing's desire to build the 78710, uh, was driven by, you know, the need uh, and the desire to sell an airplane, a bigger airplane that was more expensive, uh, to, to airlines. Um, and that's important. And so coming back to that, if the only way you can make a market work is on a derivative, but the derivatives that you have either the 737, 600, the A318, which frankly, hasn't rolled off, uh, Airbus's production lines in years in the form of a passenger airplane. Um, It's pretty much it's they don't want to they don't really want to be there, but they are looking for ways to expand their pie because there is a market there. No one's quite sure how big it is. There's a great debate there, but they would ultimately be foolish not to at least virtually try to extend uh, their reach into that market.
0: That's something that's always struck me around the way that the well, that Boeing and Airbus in particular, um, size their, um, I guess their family anchor model. Um, you know, what, what is the standard model of a, of a 737 or, a, or an A320 family aircraft and, and how will that change? Um, you know, I don't think there's a lot of money betting against an A322 derivative at some point. Um, does that mean that the A321 Neo becomes the, the sort of standard family member and the A320 is the quote unquote shrink there? Um, it's, it's a really interesting, really interesting perspective. But, I mean, apart from, from corporate politics, does Boeing really believe that it's, um, that it's 737 aircraft have been competing in the same market as, as the sort of large regional jet small airliner?
1: Um, they do. Um, but it's, but it's not necessarily an argument that certainly airlines have wanted to hear. I mean, if you look at just buying behavior and what Delta has said about why they went with 717 and subsequently C Series, that they really break it down into, you know, 20, 25 seat increments for effectively taking their enormous scale as an airline and matching a frequency with the right size airplane. And in that particular case, you know, the, the way in which, which Boeing was able to compete for that deal was they, you know, they offered, um, ironically enough, Air Canada's, uh, used E-190s, which they got through, um, their 737 MAX deal. And, um, they pretty much said, Delta pretty much said, no, thanks. That's well, not, it's not what we're looking for. So in the, the way in which Boeing sees the Max seven is very important because when they repositioned it a few years back with two more rows of seats that allowed uh, the company to put on from a fan chart perspective, put the per seat fuel burn right on top of the C-series they had to add 12 more seats to do it um and that ultimately then notched the airplane up into to what could be seen as a as a as a new category um but then they then again southwest being the stalwart 737 700 operator they are now heavily on the used side getting tremendous numbers of air, of, of refurbished airplanes hasn't necessarily wanted to go in that direction and you know we've seen them with, with deferring the Max Seven, and and ultimately again preferring, um, you know, a, an airplane that is point designed or point optimized for you know the Max si- Max Eight sized airplane. And Boeing knows that they like they've said up and down that they believe the heart of the seven thirty seven market is still the um, the Max Eight, and so you know we're we're left to look at the data and the the data as far as it shows right now is that the C series and the Max 7 are not considered in the same conversation from when airlines are looking to buy despite what Boeing says
0: yeah i mean if you're creating a a clean sheet airliner here where do you put the the increments right D- to what extent for example do you Aim for the fifty-seat increments rather than twenty-five-seat increments, purely from a staffing cost perspective.
1: So are you are you, are you thinking uh, are you clean sheet single aisle clean sheet sub one hundred clean sheet below one hundred and fifty clean sheet twin? I mean, what, what where are you where are you putting that line?
0: Yeah, so basically, I'm thinking replacement for the for the A320 and the seven three seven. Right. At, at what point do you say okay, we're going to pitch this at um, you know, 150 and 200, and then maybe somehow get a stretch to 250, um, or or do you take that delta approach and do you, do you try and be more granular in it?
1: Well, it depends on the airline model. I think you know if you're if you're looking for you know, if you're if you're a if you're a Spirit, for example, today or a Frontier, you know you're looking for uh, the largest possible airplane or the smallest possible airplane with the largest number of seats. <laughs> <laughs> in, in so many words, in terms of optimizing that balance. I mean, if you can get 235, 236, 7, 8, 9 people into an A321neo uh, or a or Max 10, you're going to do that. Uh, the, the human rear end has a great way of setting the entire economics for how you design an airplane. Primarily because... There are efficiencies that you get at um, five abreast, six abreast, seven abreast, and so on and so forth. And 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 essentially, they also they they the there is a effectively a curve that will give you a benefit in the middle, but not on either sides. And obviously, you know, you try to find the balance um, by not getting too far out. You're not flying, you're not, you're not at the A318 side of things, and you're not at the 757-300 side of things. Um, and you try to find that, that middle ground. So in that, there is a, you know, they, they typically put them about 20% apart, 15, 20% apart in terms of number of seats. So, you know, you're getting kind of a, a pretty long airplane north of about 230, 240 seats in a two-class configuration. That's that's six abreast, I should say. That and that's a bit of a, a bit of a stretch. You know, again on the, other, on the other side of things, I mean Boeing looked at a seven five seven one hundred, uh, which probably would have landed right on top of somewhere where the max eight midway between the max eight and max nine today. And that would have um, that obviously that airplane never came to be for a very good reason. It wasn't that efficient. It's carrying a lot of structure. Uh, on a per seat on a per seat basis. So how you you know structure this again you know where you, if you're going to start a clean sheet program you are know, going to want to you know think about this um, in terms of you know what's the what's the biggest you can make an airplane before it starts the the returns start to diminish and you know within that cost are you going for more range through an increased maximum takeoff weight additional strength, strengthening so on and so forth or are you looking for essentially a um, a seventy-seven 7, ten strategy, which is okay, keep keep the maximum takeoff weight where it is, make it longer, uh, trade payload for range, and be a people move. Um, those are obviously bigger questions for those that that design, build, and sell airplanes. But you know, in that, you know, how wide you make the airplane is going to tell you a lot about where uh, the increments are going to be.
0: Yeah, fair enough. Um... Now, in terms of this, should we call it a spat between Bombardier and Boeing, um, what are the primary accusations that Boeing is levelling here, um, and, and, and why do they matter?
1: So there are really two issues here. Uh, the first one is whether or not Bombardier unfairly benefited from the uh, support provided to it from the federal government of Canada and uh from the province of Quebec and which gave uh, the province a significant but minority stake in, in the C series program and whether or not uh, in turn, whether or not Delta was offered up a price that was considered effectively market distorting and so far detached from what they would normally be able to offer the airplane for, uh, Had those subsidies not been provided, effectively was Delta, um, did Delta benefit from Bombardier price dumping the C-Series into the U.S. market to get it established. And, uh, fundamentally, um, Boeing argues that they were harmed by that. The 737 program has lost sales as a result of that, um, and that they, um, deserve some, um, they they want re- they want want to have some recourse uh through the federal government in terms of a series of tariffs that would be placed on the import of a C series aircraft uh upon delivery to delta or any us carrier and right now uh it's you know that tariff uh preliminarily has been ruled to be hovering around 290 to 300% based on uh the fact that the Commerce Department said yes. Uh, both of those things are true. They they did dump um, aircraft into the U.S. market unfairly, and they were unfairly subsidized. So what we will see at the ITC is is that determination of harm. Certainly, Bombardier thinks that it has not acted outside the normal realm of commercial behavior for an aircraft manufacturer. That that discounts for large, established, desirable customers. Is standard practice in this industry, and certainly, uh, you know, Boeing has behaved in much the same way as has Airbus and has Bum- as has Embraer. You know, you look to the the, the pricing that that Boeing offered on the seven eight seven initially that was uh, that was significantly um, lower than um, its own its own cost estimates prior to the massive meltdown of its of its production system and its strategy uh, for devel- developing the 787 that uh, establishing a new commercial aircraft in the market at blue chip customers like the deltas like the Qantas, like the air Canadas of the world requires significant price cuts uh, because you're asking a, a you know a, a customer to take on the significant risk of a new airplane type Um, and what that means as far as the carrying the weight of that, of that validation. So in that same vein, um, you know, did Bombardier, uh, benefit from a bailout? Well, the reality is the C series almost killed Bombardier. I mean, they were having a major liquidity crisis around 2015 as they were shuffling their strategy. They've significantly cut their workforce, um, to the tune of thousands of jobs all over the world at all levels of that company to make sure that they, they have a sustainable cost structure. Uh, But when you combine that with funds from the Canadian federal government to finish the global 7,000 and wrapping up the, the, uh, you know, uh, C series um, and what Quebec did to keep um, 30,000 employees, you know, employees at Bombardier at their, at their jobs. I mean, I, I think a, a fair airing of that, from a from a an industry analysis and a trade perspective, is that yeah, that that was that was a bailout. That was to keep them them above water. Would they have Would they have been able to survive without that? And there is a serious question about whether or not the market uh, and market rates for for capital would have allowed them to do that in a in a way that didn't significantly change how they are running their business. And and so yes Bombardier appears to have benefited significantly uh, from um, from those funds but did it necessarily change uh, how they were pricing the C series and what and, and how they would have to behave either before or after those funds were were uh, were conferred that's that's for the ITC to decide and that's what we're gonna that's what we're gonna hear um, well tomorrow but you'll be listening to this after the decision. So, you already know.
0: <laughs> Indeed. Um, so, okay. So, in October, Airbus and Bombardier announced that Airbus was acquiring the um, 50.01% of the C-Series program for, for the pricely sum of nothing. Um, what, what has happened in the months since then? Um, is, are we in negotiation time? Is, is, is this deal looking to go to, go ahead, do you think? What's, what's your take on it?
1: Well, there, there are, there are corners of this industry that believe that if the duties stick, then the partnership goes away. Um, there is no indication, immediate indication that that's, that, that, that would happen. Um, though the biggest single, most important development, certainly, is that, Boeing and Embraer are have officially confirmed that they are in merger talks, and these this is a pair that's really been increasingly increasing their closeness from te- a technology perspective, from a um, from a uh, defense side of the business, from the commercial side of the business, and this, these relationships go back. I mean. McDonnell-Douglas days, as far as uh, what Embraer provided to McDonnell-Douglas as far as in-kind engineering labor on, I think that was the flap track fairing on the MD-11. I mean, that's how far back this goes. These guys have been working together for a long, long time. So the manifestation of that um, was not wholly surprising. You know, you saw the eco-demonstrator. I, mean, I remember talking to um, Mike who uh, who is now the chief 777X pilot, uh, formerly Seven chief pilot. Um, and it was right after Bombardier, I'm sorry, Embraer and Boeing signed a, uh, an MOU, uh, to work together on various areas of commercial technology. And I asked him what he was working on. He said, well, I actually just got my ERG 130, this 135, 145 type rating. And I said, really? That's interesting. He said, yeah, you know, we're, 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 we're getting, we're, you know, we're working closely on, 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 on X, Y, and Z. And that really struck me at the time. That was a pretty telling, pretty telling fact uh, as far as how, how these companies were thinking about things in the same way. And it's just incrementally increased and increased and increased to the point where now we have talk of a, of a full on merger, a joint venture. Um, But within that um, you get a really geo new geopolitical dynamic, right? You get, you get a transatlantic, uh, union between Canada and Europe. You get a um, I, oh sorry Canada Europe and the UK obviously based on where we are with with Brexit right now uh, and you get a north south alliance between the US and Brazil and over in um, in Asia you've got China and Russia working together on on the CR nine two nine. And on top of that, you, what we've already saw was you saw that Italy and Russia, for a time, were working together on the superjet. So it's not just that, that the business is international. The business is fundamentally now requires a, an intercontinental level of partnership that is an acknowledgement that one nation can't do it alone. And that is a a kind of a, a maturing of a trend that really began back in the '70s when Airbus was first formed. But if the acknowledgement of that really makes this a, a a strategic game that that stretches far beyond you know fair commercial terms or, or or behaviors as from from a corporate perspective, because you've got these national assets in play here. Boeing is an extension of the U.S., Embraer is an extension of Brazil, Airbus an extension of Europe, um, and and these are industries that are getting support on a strategic level from their governments, and they always have. And it's, it's fundamentally the only way that they can that they can compete with one another, because left to their own devices, there is not enough. Um, capital necessarily, whether it's uh, political or monetary, um, available for these entities to, to compete solely on a free market basis. And that is a, a dynamic that is profound. And as China rises, is going to be even more disruptive. And ultimately, you know how they compete as either a second or third player, depending on what happens between the duopoly. So... It, it it really is a um you know the, the landscape is is I mean we are in consequential days here, truly.
0: Yeah, I mean I, I, I absolutely hear what you're saying, and I know that you're learning Mandarin. Trying, trying. Anti-Bungler. Um but but yeah, it's what I find fascinating is that I guess through the 90s and early 2000s, you had Boeing in particular using um, a lot of the expertise in the four heavies in Japan, the four heavy industry companies in Japan, to produce significant parts of, of, of its aircraft, and, and it still does. Um, why doesn't that model work at the small end of the market? And or have we tried?
1: Well, if you, if you consider the MRJ the small end of the market, um, it's, they're going it alone. Um, or not alone, I should say it's that they, they, they actually have Boeing's backing in a few, few key areas around, around part support and so on and so forth. But with, you know, Western suppliers very much as a part of development, because guess what? Western suppliers are invariably a part of, of aircraft development. You look any, any, you know, us, European, Japanese, Chinese program, et cetera, et cetera, relies on a global supply base. That's just a fact but why hasn't the the the, the, the market worked uh, on that and I, I think a lot of it um, the way it's been kind of described to me is that the economics of building regional jets is really 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 tough it is is really a it, it's it, you know it, that um, from a from an outsource perspective or from a, a rate perspective um, it's the 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 numbers don't line up, and actually, what's interesting is that, um, and I'm going to get the, the components wrong here, but I know that the Japanese heavies do do a, a significant portion of of uh, Bombardier's um, regional lineup, and I, I can't quite remember uh, which parts. I might be some fuselage parts, uh, but that they have been at, at that level, um, but primarily they um, really feathered their nest as a, as a supplier through, through Boeing and, in the relationship in uh, the relationship there. I mean, the, the, you know, corporate Japan is all over um, you know, engine manufacturing, uh, other different areas of componentry that, that get far less attention hmm. than say, you know, the wings of the 787. So it, it, they, they are on a, on a lot of different programs. It, but at the same time, the economics of how you build a, a small aircraft at rate and make money doing it also tends to lend itself, to some extent, uh, toward keeping a lot of the control yourself, which is what we see in in the Embraer model for mm-hmm. how they build their airplanes.
0: Now, when Boeing went and, 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 I guess, not really announced that they were talking about uh, acquiring Embraer, but... Some of the Brazilian government seemed very surprised um that 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 was the case given that they have a fairly large holding in the company was was that true did that actually I mean I I, I keep looking back and saying did that actually happen um was it a colossal misstep was it some part of a wider play around the politics in the matter what what went down
1: I don't know the answer to that um, is the most candid um, answer I can give you. Um, but I but what I do know is that that there has been a, a move afoot for a while to try and adjust the golden share nature of the Brazilian government's role within the company. And within that, um, that was somewhat laying the groundwork for thinking about ownership structures in a different way. Joint ventures, whether either they were on the, just on the commercial side of the business or more broadly on uh the um, ownership structure of the entire company all all pieces included um that could be a you know th- that with that with that golden share in play you know clearly there wasn't there was an interest in in allowing Embraer to choose its own destiny um whether or not that was being done at the presidential level uh in Brazil uh that's At this point, it's not clear, but certainly, um, you know, uh, there might to some extent, um, be, you know, I, I, the Brazilian government say, I'm shocked to find gambling in this establishment, (laughs) you know, when, when they wake up one morning and realize that these conversations are being had, um, you know, certainly, you know, domestic politics are a powerful thing and, you know, this could, this could very much go, go in any number of different directions, but, um, the reality is that Boeing and Embraer want to work together and they want to take on Airbus and Bombardier together. Uh, whether or not there's a joint venture or a merger, uh, everyone is shown their cards about who they want to be working with. And that is going to shape the map also just inherently in terms of who stays out of whose pool uh, when it comes to, to cooperation uh, sales campaigns mm-hmm. and so on and so forth.
0: Now, I guess one of the things that people have been talking about with the um, Boeing Embraer type is that it's some kind of aqua hire right? So Boeing gets involved with Embraer so that it can, um, you know, really take the pool of trained aircraft designers um, and and move them on to work for sort of more core Boeing products, as it were. What's your take on that? Is that is is that accurate? Um, well, there there
1: are two things at play here. One is is a demographic challenge at Boeing. A lot of the engineering workforce is retiring, uh, and so you need young, busy engineers. And there are uh, or engineers who want to be busy. And one of the reasons that the E two came in under budget as it was expected to was number one because the exchange rate. Number two, because the exchange rate uh, benefits you tremendously when it comes to 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 the fact that you're you know paying your employees in reals but you're selling your airplanes in dollars. So there there is definitely a benefit that that Embraer had there. Um from an acqui-hire perspective, um Boeing has um has found ways uh, some expected some some less so to try and learn the lesson of the 787. And it, that experience on in developing that airplane so profoundly guides how the decisions that they make Um, today. And the reality is they don't for a new airplane, you don't want to go out and say, okay, let's get another Vought or, um, or another company that has not done the type of integration work required to do an all new airplane that went, you know, okay, yeah, you know, hey, we'll, we'll offer you the, the, the lowest bid at the lowest cost and we're going to get it done on time. And it's going to be great. Awesome. Oh, well, you don't have an engineering department. Okay. Okay. That's going to be a problem. You know, it's, you know, it's, they don't want a repeat of that. And so they're looking for, for partners, uh, that can provide engineering, but also understand the se- the secret sauce of how to integrate an airplane. And guess what? The the number of companies. And know how to do that with a commercial aircraft you can count on effectively one hand and you did the the uh that talent pool um and the expense of doing it uh makes a lot more sense from a strategic perspective as it's described to me through working with Embraer air rather than going out and finding first tier first tier suppliers I mean, I remember a conversation with Fred Corrado uh, back in 2015 or so. And I asked him, I said, I said, I said Fred, do you uh, do you want uh, to work on a new Boeing airplane? And um, he said, uh, we, we would. We don't have a project right now. We, we want to be a genuine partner with Boeing. We do not want to be a supplier to Boeing. That tends to be where you run into the... The political political element here about how Embraer wants to be able to determine its its own future and whether or not the Brazilian government um, allows them to do that or acts as a strategic governor to that ambition. Um, and um, again, more open questions. But you know how this unfolds is is really again going to decide what the next ten years of, of this business looks like and beyond. I mean, we don't have a new aircraft program from Boeing after 2021. We don't have a new aircraft program, uh, even a new derivative from Airbus after about 2019. So there is a a really um, again that landscape is changing and 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 it's, and it's shifting almost day by day.
0: Yeah, and it's it, it means that we are in this absolutely fascinating period for for commercial aircraft yeah. uh, manufacturers and manufacturing. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm hearing all kinds of fascinating things that are coming out of, of both Seattle and, and, and Toulouse. Um, and, and of course, then the other cities as well. I mean, you've got, um, the, the, the cabin thoughts that are going on in Hamburg around, okay, how do we plan now for what the airframers may be doing in five to six years is, is absolutely fascinating. Um, and there are a lot of really smart people thinking a lot of really smart things about it. Um, but it is still at this stage, people gazing into their crystal ball and trying to figure out what happens. So, uh, yeah. Well, uh, thank you, John, for, for, for gazing into your crystal ball uh, because that is it for today's conversation. Uh, we certainly hope you enjoyed it and we are always keen to find out what you think. Please feel free to email me at john at com with any suggestions. And thank you to our guest, John Ostra. John, where can our listeners find you?
1: You can find me on... Uh... Primarily on uh, CNN Money, uh, so that's uh, money.cnn.com, or on Twitter, uh, a little more unfiltered, at uh, John Ostrower, so that's J-O-N-O-S-T-R-O-W-E-R, John Ostrower, on Twitter.
0: And as ever, you can find me on Twitter at ThatJohn, and everything from RGN on Twitter at RunwayGirl, and at RunwayGirlNetwork.com. If you're enjoying these conversations, please leave a rating and review wherever you get your podcasts, and thanks for listening.